0: and welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. And we pay respect to their past, present, and future cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship to the land. SACPA commits to assisting reconciliation efforts by raising awareness of the ways, past, present, and present injustices can be reconciled. We're very thankful today to have with us Elvin Mills. Elvin, thank you so much for joining us and Elvin will be talking on the topic of kindness to others, a perspective of addiction crisis in Lethbridge. Thank you Elvin, and I look forward to or I yeah I look forward to your talk here today.
1: okay. Hello, everyone. My name is Alvin Mills. I've introduced myself in Blackfoot. My grandfather named me my Blackfoot name, uh, which means talk. Uh, I will be talking about my uh, my uh, uh, life, uh, I will be talking about uh, my residential school. Uh, I spent nine years uh, at St. Paul's Anglican School on the Black Reserve and in the summer of 75 they closed my brother and my cousin, we got transferred to St. Mary's. That was a Catholic school. So we did school there in the fall of 75. And I was there for four years. Till 1979, I, uh, I was at St. Mary's school. So in all told, I spent 14 years in residential school. And uh, Right now, I just turned sixty years old. Uh, the first years at school at St. Paul's, uh, we used to go to the we used to go to school in carts. One year we went to school in McGrath, and then the rest of the years we went to school in carts from St. Paul's Residential School. Uh, I remember back then uh, uh, being at St. Paul's uh, and we were junior boys, so we go to school and like we were all dressed the same, like we always had the same lunches and we were treated uh, differently and there was times that uh, people like the other students, they, they knew we were from the residential school, so we were kind of. Uh, uh, like they knew uh, like every from the residential school that we were. Uh, uh, well, they we were kind of looked on uh, as different being different. Wow. Uh, And then being at the residential school uh, was uh, was a lonely, was lonely, Um, you're there every day and uh, you have to get up, you get up for breakfast, you come back, you get ready for school, you go to school, then you come back and it was, Everything was structured, uh, being in residential school. And when we talk about abuses, usually the focus is on the priests, on the supervisors, and the abuses that they understood. Uh, the but what's not often brought up is the abuses that, From the older students, when we were at St. Paul's, we were at the mercy of the older, the senior boys. And I was the oldest of, well, my cousin, Red, Calvin, Chief Cap, and my brother, Jimmy. So I'd stand up for them. And as long as we stand up and they won't bother us after and you don't you don't tell on anybody you know you take your licks so at a very young age i learned to to fight back Mm -hmm. i I find this was a learned behavior Uh, and then with the older students the violence was always present while i was there uh, uh Alan Smallface. uh, He was. uh, He started a boxing club there. And I remember in grade four, we went down to Fort Hall, Idaho. That was my second fight. We went down there. uh, Alan Smallface formed the boxing club, Saint Paul Poor Boys. There was myself, my brother Jimmy Mills, Ivan Singer, Francis Child, Frank Wolfson. We had two fighters from the Pagan Reserve, Brian Stump, Andy Stump, and we fought out of St. Paul's. And it was a very that took away the drudgery of being in residential life, everyday life. You got to go out and boxing was a great escape for me. Uh, and then in in saying that. Uh, Dennis Chief Moon was one of the ones that taught me how to fight uh, Dennis Chief Moon was a world class fighter at one time he represented Canada uh, the Commonwealth Games in Christchurch and he was the one that when I was younger he taught teach me uh, so being at St. Paul's was uh, it was a uh, uh being uh, a boxer I was always uh, uh people knew that and uh so going through St Paul's uh uh like a lot of the guys that I went to school with they're no longer around and uh some of the things that happened at St Pauls you think like it was I tried to just put them away, but as I was going through my recovery, I learned to work on my trauma. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then that's when I was able to deal with stuff that happened. And um, I can't say that I'm fully recovered or I'm fully healed, but now at least I won't go to the bottle. At one time, I struggled with alcohol and drugs. Uh, so from St. Paul's, they closed it in the summer of 90, uh, summer of '75. Uh, I made it to the Canada Winter Games. Uh, I lost. Uh, there was an accident there, and some members of our tribe were. Were involved in that accident, and I was uh, only 14 years old when that happened, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, my grandfather was still alive, and uh, so in the fall of 75, uh, they transferred us to St. Mary's, myself, my brother, and Calvin. And then that's when we got into basketball. Those were the pleasant, more pleasant times of my uh, my experience in residential school. As part of my journey, I have to acknowledge the good times too that I spent in residential school. We were able to travel the world uh, playing basketball. We, were, we played uh, some good teams. We had a really good team. Uh, in my last year of high school, there was myself, Calvin Chief Cat, Jim Plum, Marcel Weaselhead, Winston Day Chief Jr., Marvin Manyfingers. Our first coach was Moses Weaselhead, And then in high school, it was Jerry Dawson that coached us. And uh, so we—that was one of our uh, our stronger uh, sports was basketball. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, like for a lot of us, like for myself, uh, growing up in a residential school was a form of institutionalization. Get up at a certain time and go eat. You go to bed at a certain time. Everything was structured. And I was able to get a basketball scholarship to go to Medicine Hat. I went to Medicine Hat. And then I uh, played basketball there and I was going to school. And there, there was no structure. I was on my own. I discovered alcohol.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And after that year, and then I started going to jail. I started living that life of the street life of alcohol. And then I got into the drugs, the violence, hand in hand with the street life. And uh, so living that life, the majority of my adult life, I was in and out of jail. Then in May of 99, I got charged for attempted murder. I received a four year sentence. I served it. And I came back into the community, struggling with alcohol and drug skills. I know that, when I meet, it's about to be you. gonna get some recognition for what I've done. In a perfect world, we could undo the past and start fresh. But, what's happened has happened. So now, since I've been in recovery, It's my passion to help people that are struggling with addictions.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So I finished my sentence, and then I uh, continued. uh, I went to Southern Lailum, 10 minutes outside of Nanaimo, B.C. And that's when I started working on my trauma, Mm -hmm. the grief and, that was an eye opener for me, all this life I lived that tough, cry life, you don't cry, you take your licks, but I learned it's okay to cry, it's okay to talk about stuff, that's when my healing began, and, uh uh, and for a lot of guys that I that went to school with in my generation, a lot of them, even the ones from St. Paul's, they probably went to their grave without, they not even having a chance to deal with what's inside. When I'm speaking from, from my experiences that, uh, I experienced. I come from a family of six. Now there's only two of us left. Mm -hmm. My life, when I look back on it, it was uh, my, uh, what made it bearable or what made it Positive for me was, I was able to get involved with sports and I was a good athlete. And then now, I'd like to carry that on to help the younger ones. Mm -hmm. Sometime down the road, I'd like to see if I could start a boxing club and help the younger ones. Especially, I did the, you know, the ones that are at risk.
2: Yeah.
1: And I have an organization. At one time, it was called the of Hope. I was asked about that organization. What's, what made me start? it? When this opiate crisis first hit us, Around 2012, 2013, it hit us by storm. I was working at the Lethbridge Shelter. And at that time, we were giving out party packs that consisted of uh, syringes, cookers. You could cook up your drugs into liquid and then use get them into your, in the syringe. And then wherever you are right away, you inject, they they say smash. You do a smash right there. there was one individual, he had overdosed on the east side of Lethbridge Shelter. Coming around, I noticed an overdose right away. We got the Knox loan. We phoned 911 ambulance got there, this individual they brought into the hospital. Next day, I was back, for seen him, and he was in the same spot, and I asked him about if he wanted to go to detox, some kind of recovery,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and he said, no, he says, I'll overdose till I'm gone, I don't care. I thought to myself, he has lost all hope.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then at first I started my organization. I called it Bray of Hope. It is the foundation of hope. I thought to myself, he needs some hope. Three days later, I seen him. I walked up to him and I gave him a hug. I told him I care about what that is to so now my organization is called Gimma in Renewal and Healing Center. Gimma is a, it's it's a flatwood word. If you translate it, it means kindness to others, caring for others. My organization, the mandate will always be to support the at risk and vulnerable that uh, struggle on the streets. I've lived that life of being on the streets, of being hungry, nowhere to go, trying to get that good feeling. Now I pass out sandwiches. I was getting donations for jackets. Sometimes when the people that are struggling, they're on the drugs, they don't feel the elements as they should be feeling. Sometimes they only have a hoodie. I can do them a jacket. I want to thank the Lethbridge community for the overwhelming support that they have shown, providing jackets for the at-risk and vulnerable. I will be initiating a Christmas gift campaign for the at-risk and vulnerable, and it'll be uh, it'll be at a hall, and they're gonna have a Christmas dinner. And now we'll ensure that every one of them has a Christmas card and a Christmas present. So just for this one Christmas, I'm going to make it special for them. They live a hard life out there. That's being in society today. They should be afforded the dignity, the compassion as everyone else gets, regardless of the choices that they make, they are still people. Totally. And that'll be always my goal, if I ever, if I have the resources, I will feed them, in any way I can help. In Lethbridge, I was at 240 names but the Indigenous community that are struggling here in the city. They're the ones that, that I'll focus on. They're not going anywhere soon. It was, it is my hope one day to create the Blackfoot Indigenous Recovery Facility that could help the people that are struggling,
2: mm.
1: to help them with that trauma, Uh, unresolved grief, and now uh, to have uh, suicide intervention training. We need that to help the people. We have to start being proactive. The numbers are getting higher. And the individuals, the community members, they're getting younger. And the opioid crisis, right now, it's at the worst it's at, it's at ever been. There's fatalities every week,
2: mm-hmm.
1: reading in the paper. Mm-hmm. And I call out on the communities, the entities. We have to have our, all hands on deck mentality on this, to work together, to help the people that are struggling, and, uh, like I said, from when this crisis first started up to today, there's been, uh, in two individuals that have been found outside, uh, that have succumbed to the, uh, the weather, for some of us that they're starting to make opioids stronger. We encourage the ones that are struggling out there not to be alone, to be always with someone that way they could call for help. I'm trying to initiate some programs through my organization to start addressing the trauma there's one lady that has lost her two loved ones, a brother and a sister and now the father, she's alone and it's heartbreaking and I live in the Lethbridge community the other day I seen uh, Individual going through the dumpster. He's seen a pizza box, he opened it. He looked around, I was sitting in my vehicle, he took two slices of that pizza and put it away. He made sure no one seen him. That broke my heart to see that. So I'm constantly trying to with whatever resources I get, there's some really great people out there that have helped. And some that said they don't want to get recognized to help these people that struggle. And we have to remember the Yarkin, the families. We can't give up on them. Everybody deserves a chance. So I uh I uh like right now uh I used to work at uh, three voices of healing It was a recovery facility outside of Invermere, B.C. And then I worked at bringing home the spirit. In standoff as a peer support worker. Now I've been able to start a program, peer support mentorship program, where I have individuals that over two years clean now that have lived that life of the addictions that have experienced withdrawal that have experienced craving they wake up in the morning they wash their pipe whatever residue they can get from their pipe then they cook it up and they inject that. They call it dope sick. That's how they start their day. And right now I have two peer support. They're over two years clean. They've been through the fire and now they're helping in the community. peer support mentorship program can work they've been through that life and now they're giving them back
2: they
1: don't have no degrees they don't have no certificates but their degrees from life itself what they went through they went through hardship they went through adversity They went through loss. And now Melissa and Cody are giving back. And I'm going to recruit more of them. Because they've been through the fire. What they go through is almost like a living hell. Mm -hmm. The withdrawals, the cravings, the wanting. Opioid is such a strong drug, it's like how you need air like how you need to... You can't just get up one day and say, no, we're going to quit the process. Recovery facilities now, they have to start recognizing... methadone. You got to start recognizing that as recovery, suboxone as recovery. At least with the suboxone or methadone, they can control the cravings. They're not going to overdose on the the suboxone. Everything is regulated. And in in ending, I just would like for the mainstream public when they see somebody out there, they're not seeing an addict. We put ourselves in their shoes for a few minutes and try and figure what they feel. A lot of them are outside now. It's the choices that they make, that they go through. My grandfather, I'm standing on the to Oh, oh, see me? I that Api can't. and just I was just saying, these are some of the the grandfathers. My grandfather used to be with, and I was fortunate enough to be in their presence. Sometimes when I did. When things get tough, I call on them. Even though they're gone, I still feel them. I am very, uh, I am very humble. And I think I'm thankful for this opportunity to be able to share. My story. <clears throat> Thank you.
0: Thank you, Elvin, very much for sharing your story with us. Um, incredibly deep felt, and really appreciate your honesty, your sincerity, and I can only imagine how emotionally difficult that was. So I really, really appreciate it. We all do really appreciate it. Um, If you're ready to proceed, are you okay with me asking questions now? Are you, or do you need a minute? Yeah. 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 Okay. Our first question comes from Knut Peterson. Thank you very much Elvin for telling us your story and giving context to the struggle many people are going through. Please tell us more about how you think Blackfoot culture can do more to help.
1: Okay, with the Blackfoot culture, uh, it's very, it's very, uh, very strong.
2: And
1: It can help in recovery. I'll I'll use an example where we had a consumption site that was here in Lethbridge. They had a ceremonial room in there. I was with my trauma counselor, she's based out of Victoria, BC. We drove through the consumption site. There was people doing drugs outside of the consumption site. There was drug dealing going on. Everything that comes with the lease. And then there's a ceremonial room inside the consumption site. So with that being said, with uh, Blackfoot, the Blackfoot, the religion and the culture shouldn't be beside where there's drug use right there, and uh, I, I uh, and uh, like uh, a lot of uh, like the elders know about it and. It's kind of a hush hush topic. Uh, but I brought up, I wanted to uh, start some recovery camps it's just 10 minutes outside of Lethbridge here on Blood Tribe community lands. The idea is very well received. We get the ones struggling here in the city, we bring them out there. There are a few days clean and then we, we have sweat rods, they live in a T.P. And then there's no chance of any kind of drug use or any kind of substances getting to them because it's out there. Here in the city, the drug use is rampant, it's all over. So let's get them away from here and you know. Naive, I'm, I'm still going to pursue that. I just haven't had the supports that I need. Mm-hmm. Even the ones that are struggling out there, they told me that's a good idea. Some of them are camping out anyway. Mm-hmm. Let's live in a teepee. Live there, and then we'll drum out there. And uh, so now I've reached out to... Uh, The Blackfoot Reserve have reached out to Bikani. So, there's enough interest there. So, in the new year, I want to again try to pursue the possibilities of running some recovery camps to help the people. Because Blackfoot culture is very strong, given we use it. To help the people you know it's very strong i was around it with my grandfather i respected a lot but there can't be drug use and ceremony right now that it just doesn't work you know i just It's just me talking, I hope I'm not stepping on anybody's toes. Mm
2: -hmm. But my
1: grandfathers, the grandfathers, if they knew about that, they would have said something. Mm. But yeah, I I really think with the black culture, it could help with the people that are struggling. Mm.
0: Okay. Our next question comes from Alan Friesen. Thanks, Alvin, for your authenticity. Can you speak to the concept of the Eagle's Nest?
1: The Eagle's Nest, the concept. I don't think I'm very familiar with that. I'm
0: sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. What are your hopes and goals for your organization, Kindness to Others, to help those you serve? Would you like to see additional resources from your peer support mentorship or other service providers?
1: Yes, I would. Uh, My organization, we've had our uh, registration for two years now. And I am still hope is that some funding will come into place with the peer support mentorship program. I'm glad that, it, that, that the, the person there asked about it. I will continue to because it, it does work, because these are the ones that have lived it. Right now, uh, uh, with the uh, Grace Froise started a very good program in the Edmonton. Where it's a support base. Where instead of sending them to jail, get them through the drug courts, where they have. Uh, 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 options of going into treatment rather than going into the jail. And then now they have some success stories. Now we have a high turnover of. Offenders that are just going through—they get out, and by the way, they're back into their what they were going through. So if we could start getting to them, and the drug courts—I know McMahon has started that—and with my program, it will be peer support based. They're the ones that have lived, and they're the ones that are giving back. And I'm very hopeful. I continue to try to get funding. But I'm a grassroots organization. I do have a board of directors, I do have all that. Okay.
0: Um, our next question comes from uh, Bev Mundell. Thanks, Alvin, for sharing your journey with us. How can we contribute to your planned Christmas party?
1: Okay, I will leave you uh, a contact uh, number. And my plan is to rent the Westminster Hall. I've done so in the past. And I started a database. I'm quite familiar with uh, just the younger ones. I don't know the ones that struggle out there. And whoever wants to help, I want to try to see if I can even get Santa Claus there in mm-hmm. a Christmas tree, and we'll make it a very special Christmas for them. And I uh, will have contact information because we hear a Christmas gift campaign for the, the hospital, for Salvation Army. Why not a Christmas gift campaign for the ones that struggle,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the ones that? That won't don't know where the next meal is gonna come from. Yeah. The ones that just want to get through the day. Thank you.
0: Okay, Alvin, uh, maybe just provide that uh, contact number once you have it. If you provide it to SACPA, we can we can then provide that contact number on to our members here, um, if that's possible. If you could provide it to
1: Connect. Yeah. Knew- Okay, okay uh, it's uh, 403 ah. 331 Do you, you want to just
2: repeat
1: that? 403?
0: 403
1: 331
0: Wonderful, thank you. Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Do you feel that decriminalizing decriminalization zazing, and providing a safe supply of drugs would be a good or a bad idea?
1: At this point, I don't see I don't see no harm in trying in trying that concept. Like, uh, we do have to be very proactive uh, to combat this opioid crisis at this point. So, and uh, I like what that, that uh, sorry about that. I like uh, that question that, uh, that, the one that just posed that question. Mark, because with the opioid crisis it's a social it's a social uh issue you know if we could start working on them talking to them then they might go into drug courts rather than just sending them to jail with no kind of counseling and then getting them back up there it's just like a revolving door mm-hmm. so yeah we I, I like his concept of uh what he just said, yeah.
0: Okay, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Alvin, thank you for sharing your story and the stories of others. What needs to happen to start a methadone program?
1: Okay, so uh, with the methadone and uh, uh, with the methadone and uh, the, um, the suboxone, when they get on that. Uh, Usually they they're just coming off the the detox parse process right they have they're going through the withdrawals and then what, the withdrawals the first two three days are the hardest especially the ones that have been using hardcore and then once they get through that the hardest part of the withdrawals and then they'll start uh, some will with some will will adjust. Well, some will like Methadone better than Suboxone. Some will like Suboxone better than Methadone. And then once they start that, and then they'll be working with the physician. and then they'll start their doses. And then once they start their doses, and then they'll find a good balance, and then they'll, and as long as they're on their doses that controls the craving. So it'll take quite the effort where they'll go into detox. And then like my with my peers supports, they've been through that process. And uh, and I know one is completely off the Suboxone zone and their dosages are always getting smaller. So you know like it, it can work as long as it's monitored. And then when the people that are in recovery, when, like even with my peer support, they're on uh, urinalysis. And the purpose of the urinalysis is not to shame them, it's just to to, uh, get that progress up there, the the progress that they've made. And 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 to keep the integrity of their recovery, to keep that in place. You know, and then we know that they're still trying. They're doing
2: it, and,
1: and
0: there is a clinic in town, is there not? There is a methadone clinic in Leftbridge, is there
1: not? Yes, yes, there is, and I and I've uh, I've heard that they they do good work. Uh, that uh, so there is supports here in place. It's just a matter of getting everybody to, to, you know, to get together on this. eh?
2: Yeah,
1: Mm. and I'm just doing my, like for me, I, I've been in frontline work for a long time now. Mm. So I'm very in tune with, like, uh, especially with the opioids right now, with the Benzo that's being mixed in with, it's getting stronger. In fact, there was a warning yesterday from the blood reserve. So you have to be very like with the drugs itself, even if somebody that's hardcore, they still have that. They can still overdose.
0: Okay, and Alan Friesen is with Beth Mundell in terms of how do we help regarding your planned Christmas party. I think you mentioned that, but Alan's part of wanting to help as well, Alan. So give that number a call. Um, Beth Mundell, how is your program funded, the Kindness to Others program? How are you funded? At
1: this point, I, I've never been funded. I've relied on donations. Um, the uh, Bud Tribe, uh, Senior Management, uh, Nadine Tellfeathers and Rick Soup have been very supportive. Uh, and then I've, I've had individuals that have uh, that have uh, supported uh, my sandwich runs. And still quite, uh, I'm, I'm still quite hopeful, and I'm still uh, seeking our, the Blood Tribe leadership for some supports to help me uh, with the with my uh, the funding that I have. Uh, but right now, with the jackets uh, that I, I'm dis- distributing, you know, they came from the community, at Westbridge. Mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and then usually with the I do a bag lunch run. It consists of a sandwich, a bag of chips, a drink, and some kind of. Usually, the ones struggling out there, they like sweet stuff. So try to get like some kind of a candy or a a candy bar with them. Um,
0: Our next question comes from Leona Jacobs. I think the idea of a recovery camp is good, however, another SACPA speaker recovered from addictions noted that the person needs to want to recover. What might be the options to help those with addictions to find their way to wanting to recover?
1: Well, that's where uh, like I, uh, I, always, I also had a program, uh, street-level intervention program. That I had uh, uh, made to the uh, uh, introduced to the city, and there's a lot of entities that are uh, that have those services, and for some of us we get confused because there's a duplication of services. Uh, but for my for myself and with the work that I do, i I'm, I'm right out there. Talking to them, engaging, and sometimes that's the first. That's the first. Uh, that's the first thing you do is you go out there, and once you start knowing them, and then you're talking to them, and then some of them, if they do express uh, a desire to get into detox, and then by all means, you try to get them into detox with bringing home the spirit. Uh, They said, we don't take uh, intakes uh, uh, Monday and Thursdays. But when somebody wants to go to detox, you try to act on it right then and there. Let's get them to detox before they, they find something. And then once they find something and then that thought of detox is gone. So we have to find a way of transitioning some of the ones struggling. Into detox. There's seventy-five bits. Let's make use of them.
0: Okay. Um, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Is the Leftbridge drug courts effective?
1: I haven't uh, I know um, Dame in uh runs that from McMahon and I've met with Grace voiced on a couple of occasions, and uh, I haven't really heard of anything, but I do know of individuals that have been in and out, and then right by the way, they're just right back into their same behaviors, they're back into the addictions. Uh, and, you know, if there was a way where at least they could have some kind of counseling, You know, and then let them be aware that they can go into this drug court. They won't have to go to jail, but then they'll have to abide by whatever the drug court. There's got to be conditions, right? And and for some of them, that might be there. They can get their kids back. They could get their place back. I'm seeing a high number of indigenous coming in from the reserve into the city. And somebody yesterday mentioned that that the population, they're getting younger. So we have to start some intervention right in the schools right now. You know, start intervention. We need that.
0: There, There seems to be a lot of cuts to those kind of services, though, lately in in Alberta. Right. And also. Uh, the super, Supervised Safe Consumption Site was shut down. Have you noticed um, how those cuts are affecting people in terms of finding help or finding a place that is safe or uh, any other services? Have you noticed any of those cuts?
1: Well, I've noticed, uh, like with all opioid crisis. it's Like I I did a survey myself and I was at 240 names plus of of, uh, people that were struggling that were of uh, 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 indigenous descent. So now, and then of course, we're getting more transients coming in from biggest cities and then so and then it's coming into Westbridge and then we're getting a lot of them coming in from the, the reserve there into Westbridge. There. So we need if we need to see if we could accommodate that the ones that are struggling here in to see if we could accommodate some services geared towards them. I hear this is Blackfoot territory that's always being mentioned. Okay, right in the city, there's 240 of them that are struggling. Mm-hmm. So what can we do to help them? Let's start with some trauma programs. And then go out there Talk to them. Try to get them into detox. We need uh, a facility that could gear to address the the people in the in the city. I hear Seed Alpha House, they got these sober shelters going up. That's good. That's good. But I'd like to see something geared towards the indigenous population. Hmm. For some of us, it's like the one struggling on the street. I see, like right now, there's been a lot of programs, entities doing this and that. And then they keep falling through the cracks, hmm. keep falling through the cracks.
0: Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Does your kindness to others foundation have a tax exempt status, i.e. can you issue tax receipts?
1: Yes, we can do uh, tax exempt receipts because uh, I am uh, uh, registered under of P. Pedersen, yeah. That's... No. And we do have, uh, like, we do have our, uh, uh, our board of directors, and uh, uh, we're a grassroots organization, um, and uh, like I said, we I've been doing this for a long time, and I'll probably keep doing this, but my work.
0: Our next question comes from Jim Miller. Do you work with Doctor Esther Tailfetters at the Recovery Center on the Blood Reserve to try and get addicts into Leftbridge? In Leftbridge, into uh, no, that center?
1: I, no, I, I don't, uh, I don't work with her. Uh, no, I don't know what. Like I, uh, I, uh, I'm just uh, we're, uh, trying to concentrate on the the Leftbridge uh, population. I. Like I'm not too like what's going on out there on the blood reserve. What they're doing, I, uh, I, uh, I haven't. uh, Yeah, I haven't really. I don't know what they're
2: doing out there. Okay.
0: Um, Knut Peterson, can you speak a bit about how different agencies in Leftbridge are working together or not wanting to cooperate?
1: Oh, was that to me?
0: Yes. Yeah, sorry, that was yeah. Oh, so you, do you want me to reread
1: it? That okay. Can you repeat that again?
0: Yeah, totally. So the question from Knut Peterson can you speak a bit about how different agencies in Leftbridge are working together or not wanting to cooperate?
1: You know that's kind of uh, uh, That's uh, uh, a touchy subject, I would say. Uh, Because of uh, the entities Uh, and I noticed, uh, like, uh, there was a group that had contacted me, asking me for ideas of what I was doing. And then I noticed there's other groups and there was even a teepee that was put up at Park Place Mall. uh, A group that just started
2: uh,
1: uh, dealing with recovery. So, I've, I've noticed there's been a renewed interest in this uh, opioid crisis, the fight. Uh, but with myself, I've, I've been fighting this fight all this time. You know, I've been frontline, frontline work, frontline work. And, and then, so I guess it's encouraging that society is. Recognizing the the serious the serious uh, adverse effects of uh, the opioid crisis mm. and how the indigenous population has been affected by it, it's affected us very adversely. Alvin. Um
0: that's it for all the questions in the queue. Before we end today's session, do you have a message for us to take home? Do you have an idea of. Um, would you like to say some final words to us?
1: Yes, I would. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to I'm just uh, asking for the people out there. If we could help the ones struggling out here. If you could have a cup of coffee or an encouraging word for one of the ones struggling out there. Especially right now, it's Christmas. And for a lot of them, they're going to spend it alone. It's a sad time of year for a lot of them. And for, for some of us, that if we have this little bit of con- compassion, offer them a sandwich. If you see somebody out there, offer them a kind word. And thank you again for allowing me to share my story.
0: Thank you so much, Elvin, for joining us today, for your honesty, your, your uh, caring, your compassion. Um, Laurie Schultz, Alvin, thank you for your work that meets people where they are at and affirms their value as a human being and shows, showing each kindness. Very grateful for your work. Knut Peterson, homelessness is awfully, obviously a huge issue, especially this winter. Bev Mundell, thank you so much for your presentation. Jim Miller, thank you, Alvin, for a very interesting and passionate talk. Alan Friesen, in the, in the, in the movie, The Meaning of Empathy by Dr. Tailfeathers, made it clear how harm reduction is the most, the, the most proven path to moving forward with long-term recovery. Um, And so thank you very much for joining us today, Alvin. Um, And thank you for providing that phone number. I hope people will donate to your Christmas um, um, idea of providing a meal and some comfort. And next week, folks, join us on Thursday next week with Linda Hancock on the COVID chaos and Christmas. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Um,